have a conversation, a discussion, things that come up for you? I never thought about, because I've, I've obviously thought a lot about how my practice is going to fit in, you know. I didn't even consider that it would concurrently. I mean, obviously it will, but, you know, my vision of it was all was like, you know, okay, so school's going to be like 80%, and then I'm going to, like, give... 15% here to practice and then, you know, my girlfriend happy at the same time, back and forth and juggling. But I never thought about integrating them, you know, and I think that's something I didn't. Well, I'm glad you have a new thing to consider because it really is powerful. And it's not powerful only for graduate school. It's powerful for all of our lives because we are taught in the Western world to compartmentalize. You know, you've got this much time for this and this much time for this and these things are not speaking to each other. And when we compartmentalize our practice, usually what happens is it gets squeezed into you know, five minutes a day or ten minutes a day or ten minutes a week or whatever. Ten minutes a week is not enough to develop the kind of combustion engine that is required in order for the stuff that is needed to arise to then compost and shift and come into a different relationship with it. It's not enough. So we have to change our perspective from thinking, you know, in graduate school, you're not going to have very much extra time. Rather than make extra time, how do you bring your practice to graduate school? There's a book that I read, which is brilliant. It's called Meditation on a New York Minute, and it's for business people. It's fabulous. And the whole thing is, is that business people don't have extra time. So it's not about making special extra time for meditation. It's about bringing meditation into everything that they're doing. And it's transformative. And that's as applicable to graduate school as it is to being a, a dental hygienist. As it is, I mean, it's just absolutely applicable to bring the qualities and the factors of meditation and mindfulness into everything that we're doing. And you're entering into an, a graduate program, and so there's going to be a lot of studying that you're going to do. It's not going to be the time for intensive retreat. But if you bring that application to your graduate school, then there will be payoffs that you will find when you next are able to go on retreat. I can assure you. I can't tell you what they will be, but I can assure you they will be there. Nick, what is your job? I work at range control at Fort Carson. So I work on the military training lines. That's right. So we do things to make them more safe and training. Yeah. And Luke, what are you doing? Oh, I serve coffee. Or kangaroo coffee. It's on Fillmore right before I-25 on the east side of I-25. It's kind of like a Dutch Brothers thing where you drive in. Did it used to be like a, a topless coffee shop before? It may have been. Was it a <laughs> bikini or a bikini something yeah. like that? Uh, where the, it was only girls and they wore bikinis and they served coffee. There is still one of those in town. They had two locations and that one shut down and became kangaroo. It became kangaroo. I didn't yeah. notice that, but it changed names and I thought, I wonder if they've changed their... Dress code. Dress code. They have, yeah. <laughs> and they uh, hire men, too. <laughs> yeah. That is weird. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Did wow. you used to go there a lot? No, I've never <laughs> been there. <laughs> but I heard about it. Yeah. That's weird. Mm -hmm. Wow. I remember when I was studying with one of my teachers, he brought... There's always this, this succession of a teacher before a teacher. So, so his, Dr. Cohen brought in his teacher, and her name was Lady Comfort, and she was from China. And she was a, a retired figure skate skater. And when she was 52, she picked up Chen Tai Chi, and she started practicing it eight days a week. And so when I met her, she was 88, post-stroke. And she, Dr. Cohen had brought her up to give us a little seminar. And despite the elevation and despite the stroke, just an upright 
able lady. And so one of her little parlor tricks was she was known as the unmovable lady. She would dare anybody to knock her down, push her. And she would just stand, root herself, and you couldn't do it. You couldn't knock the lady down. It was pretty tricky. And one of her little speeches, one of her little principles, which kind of basically took to heart and we started to see this reflected in really in, in our practice. And she said, you don't practice, or you don't set, a, set aside a time just for the practice. You're practicing when you're sitting on the bus. You're practicing when you're pushing your grocery cart. You're practicing everything I've taught you, everything that's, that is the information that's being brought to you by me, the other students, and his teachers, and so forth. You find a way to make it a 24-hour thing. It is, it is, you're doing this 24 hours, so you know, she talks about coiling and all this other physical stuff, but she was making examples of how you can apply this so that you are a living embodiment of it 24-7. And I saw no difference, and I thought Buddha was trying to tell us something is that, yeah, we hear meditation, listening to principles doesn't stop when I leave this door. Right. How do I do it 24-7? How do right. I do it? I'm dealing with my patients, dealing right. with my doctors, right. dealing with my relationships, <clears throat> dealing with confrontation, dealing with slothfulness. What is it that I'm doing 24-7 as, as the practice? I remember this other teacher, and I thought, I don't know if you guys experienced this, where he says his worst days of practice is when he's not busy. He says, if I loaf around or if I'm goofing off, for some bizarre reason, I find it harder to practice. But when I actually have things to do my day, I don't know if that is a sense of motivation, but then I find some way to make, you know, official practice to set, set aside a time. And I know for me, the slothfulness of letting it get to me and not getting motivated and get, you know, get on the cushion or, or whatever it is, other things i got to do throughout the day to make it happen. But that idea of just being active, keeping that activity in the brain. And I find myself, even in my playtime, like if we're watching, uh, when I watch that movie, Young Adult, I immediately find myself using that as, as a model of why we practice. You know, watching this person live a life that is the opposite of what we're trying to accomplish. And so forth and so on. So trying to find in your everyday existence if it's play or work or if it's you know a healing moment or a busy mind but trying to find those principles that continuous and I guess our sense of embodiment. Right. And I think you know one of the elements of training is is that you know that you are like competent when you can do something under incredible duress. So not under ideal circumstances but under opposite, you know, under the most impossible circumstances. And you know, I was thinking about that a lot with my with my dad so part of this process of grieving has also been remembering you know things that dad did and dad really tried to instill values and ways of thinking and you know there were a couple of times where it was very you know the situation was very extreme and yet the thinking prevailed you know how to think in a particular way in order to make sure that it was going to be okay and you know that the, there's, the training has been effective when under those extreme circumstances you can still maintain the, the correct thinking or the correct attitude or the correct valuing. You know? um, one of the interesting things about the forest tradition that I've been a part of is, is, is that you know, in the contemporary American Buddhist scene, people like things to be comfortable. You know? They don't like to sit too long. They like to know what the schedule is. They like everything to be just according to everything. The diet has to be perfect. It's gluten-free and wheat-free and dairy-free and, you know, all of this stuff so that it's set up according to one's own needs. And there's nothing about gluten-free and dairy-free and wheat-free which is bad. There's nothing about that which is bad. But what happens is, is that people lock into, like, how it has to be in order for me to be able to practice. 
And the forest tradition sort of operated a little bit on the opposite valuing. You know, we would try and do things deliberately to knock us out of balance to see what it would be like to practice when we were not in balance. So, you know, we would have these all-night meditation vigils. So we'd start at 7.30 and we'd go until 4.30 in the morning or 5.30 in the morning and meditate. I mean, unless you're you're an adept at at entering into uh, absorption at will, there's no way you can sustain that kind of practice in a busy monastery and have only pleasant mind states, you know? It's just not possible. And so part of what we learned how to do was how to sustain the practice through discomfort and sleepiness and tiredness and boredom and all the rest of that. So, and it, it's actually, it's a tremendous value to be able to do that, you know, so that you have some ballast with you when it isn't always so easy, you know? And so certainly, you know, it isn't that there's anything wrong with having things being comfortable, but when we get identified as that's the only time we could practice, that becomes problematic, you know? So, yeah, we would torque it deliberately so that we would have it so that it wasn't comfortable, you know, and see what would happen. Sometimes on the full moon meditations, you know, it was glorious because you had a long stretch of sitting and the mind would clear and you'd drop into these spaces that was just fabulous, you know. And that was my hope in having the full moon meditation vigils here, that there could be some kind of a flavor of that, you know, that would come. That I don't know if people feel that or not. So I'm delighted, Scott, that you have another framework that you can explore. That's really important. And each of us, you know, that it's not just for Scott, it's for each of us, you know, how to bring this into every aspect of our life. You know, one of the, the questions that I was asking as a part of this Foundations of Mindfulness class is where is it that you are not meditating? What are the non-meditation places in your life, you know? What do they look like? And look at them, you know, and why is it that you're not meditating there, you know? How come? Because it has maybe more to do with a, a view about what meditation is supposed to be than the reality of actually bringing, you know, the qualities of mindfulness and clarity and interest and energy and to what those circumstances are.